Howdy, folks. My name is Owen Brand. And I'm Katie Cadaver. And we are co-hosts of the VHS Vault Podcast, where old is new and cringe is king. Uh, we are a podcast dedicated to bringing you old and obscure movies from deep in the vault. That's right. You can listen to us on Spotify, Amazon Music, and on Planet Rage Radio Thursdays at 8 p.m. Central on the Live 365 app. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube. And email us at vhsvaultpodcast at gmail.com. The Shameless Picture Show is part of the Cinepunks Network. If you like the Shameless Picture Show and you want to hear other great shows like it, make sure you check out the Cinepunks Network. You can find them at www.cinepunks.com. That's C I N E. P-U-N-X. There's other great shows such as Cinepunks. There's The Carnage Report, Cinema Smorgasbord, Fat Girl Hacks, Loud, Fast, Philly, Tomb of Ideas, and Twitch of the Death Nerve, and so much more. If you like punk rock and you like movies, make sure to go to www.cinepunks.com. And let's not forget the sponsors for the Cinepunks Network. We have the Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. They are the premier screen printer of the Lehigh Valley with service to the whole country, professional and personal in a way that only a DIY business can be. They also have ridiculously low prices for whatever your screen printing needs may be. You can visit them online at xlvacx.com. That's xlvacx.com. Lehigh Valley Apparel Creations. We also have the Essex Coffee Roasters. They're, all their coffee is roasted to order. They have high-quality beans, bunch of apparel, and tea available. They are bringing high-quality coffee to the masses without the pretentiousness. Use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. You can visit them at www.essexcoffeeroasters.com. That's E-S-S-E-X, coffeeroasters.com. Once again, use the code CINEPUNKS for 10% off your first order. Big shout out to the band Crossed Keys uh, for lending us that awesome fucking music during our little ad. That song is called Who We Never Were. You can buy that single currently off of Bandcamp. The band is called Crossed Keys. It will be on their full-length album, Believes in You. Uh, That song was lent to me by Crossed Keys, specifically, uh, I don't know if he goes by Joey Angel or goes by Joshua Alvarez, but I met him as Joshua Alvarez. He's the co-host of Cinepunks, our fucking network. And I told him, I love this song. I want to use it. So that way people don't have to listen to me talk. And he said, fuck yeah. So please, if you like the song, uh, the song is called Who We Never Were. You can get that on Bandcamp currently. Uh, off of their album, Believes in You. You can get the 10 song. The 10 song LP is out May 5th. Friday, May 5th. Uh, you can actually order it on vinyl right now. So go show them some love. This episode is also brought to you by Paramount Pictures. Paramount Pictures is a legendary producer and global distributor of filmed entertainment since 1912. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 film titles with rights to an additional 2,500, featuring films by Hollywood's most respected filmmakers, including Martin Scorsese, J.J. Abrams, and Michael Bay, among others. Paramount Pictures Library consists of more than 1,000 films, including such classics as Star Trek, Godfather, and Indiana Jones franchises. Academy Award winners Braveheart, Forrest Gump, and Titanic, and current favorites such as The Mission Impossible and Transformers. 
franchises. Paramount Pictures distributes its titles on DVD and Blu-ray through Paramount Home Entertainment. We are happy to have them. We fucking love Paramount Pictures. podcast actually discusses movies be aware that it may discuss any of the following elements endings surprise twists unexpected cameos and all manner of spoilers if this doesn't appeal to you why listen to a movie podcast without further ado please enjoy our feature presentation the shameless picture show hello and welcome to another episode of the shameless picture show i am michael byers and with me today is a, a pretty good friend of mine we've known each other for a long time at this point. I don't even remember exactly where we met, but today I'm joined on the podcast with Drew Britton. Drew Britton, for those of you who are not familiar, is a uh, originally from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He is a filmmaker. He is a he, he directs. He produces. He writes. Um, he's done such things such as um, the films uh, "They Want Me Gone." Uh, back of the staircase and when the king tilts as well as a, uh, a myriad of short films uh i first met you back i think in school like right after school i'm not a hundred percent sure on that but I'm, I'm pretty confident we met each other either in school or right after school in one of the productions we were both helping on and since then you've been continuing your um your career as a filmmaker with your love for both um horror films and art house cinema and kind of bringing those two worlds together and correct me if I'm wrong. Aren't you also teaching now? Yeah. So I'm a professor at a university in Southern Illinois, EIU, um, where I teach a number of film studies courses as well as production based courses. Perfect. Um, I'm trying to remember, do you remember where we met? Yes, I do. Uh, so yeah, it was after shortly after we graduated and we were working on the set of the Milwaukee production, The Surface. And that was in the mm, summer. Gotcha. That was in the summer of 2013. So yeah, I had graduated shortly before that. And I think yeah, you we were doing transportation that. on that film, weren't you? Yeah, I was doing, I was part of the, uh, I was one of the production coordinators and I was in the transportation department. So yeah, in between undergrad and grad school, I was working on sets and, um, and that was one of the sets I was working on. And so that's where I'm sure we had kind of heard of or had known each other um, or had crossed paths at that point. But I remember specifically talking to you about horror and just being like, oh, hey, blah, blah, blah. And because I think you had finished um, your short film, your your thesis film from undergrad. And okay. so you and I were talking a lot about that. And didn't you also help a li- at least a little bit on... Um my short film um love you still didn't you help procure a boat um no i was doing the boats for the surface okay Um, i could have because those films shot so close to each other too that i mm -hmm. i kind of got them uh a little mixed up but yeah i definitely remember you working on the surface and um uh yeah we definitely bonded over horror because while horror is one of the biggest genres on the planet it's still look down upon especially when you're working on some of these productions where you know some personalities are just take themselves a little too seriously and and such it's just it's 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 definitely something that bonds people together i don't remember how we found out each other liked horror unless you just knew knew my film and then we just start talking from there 
Yeah, well, I approached you because I had seen or at least had heard of at that time from the Darkness Theater. Mm -hmm. I knew it was more so horror adjacent and had a lot of just, you know, aesthetically speaking, a lot of um, horror infused into it. And that's what I thought was cool about it. It wasn't overtly horror. It was more so just like taking kind of the themes and kind of the um, spirit of horror and then infusing that into like this kind of very like very heady, dark um, uh, kind of emotional drama. Well, I'm glad. I appreciate that you liked it. Um, but yeah, and since then, like we, I don't know, you're one of those, you're, you're like almost sometimes my favorite type of friend where we don't talk to each other on a, a super regular basis, but whenever we do, we always have something interesting to talk about oh, yeah. with each other. Cause we're both busy people you're teaching. And, um, but like, it almost feels like we just continue, we pick up conversations every couple months and oh, yeah. just continue it on. Yeah, or it's just like, oh, I know Mike would be into this film. I'm mm -hmm. gonna you know, shoot him a text, see if he's seen this, or or mm -hmm. what have you. Especially when it's it's horror related, or it's yeah, it's so fun when you do let kind of like the thoughts collect over the over the months, and then once you do hang out, it's like, oh, you've got all this stuff to talk about, you know, as yeah. opposed to you know significant other or a friend you do see every day where you can just you know. Yeah, I I, I think I think you're you're legitimately one of those friends that I don't think we've we've very rarely ever had conversations about our personal life. It's always just <laughs> right. so like, um, you know, movie and topic based that, but yeah, it never yeah. feels like it's always a very rich conversation. Oh yeah, absolutely. Which absolutely. is why I wanted to have you on this episode. Cause I've not had you on the show since I think season two or three, where we were uh, making a list of our favorite, like slow burn horror films. Oh yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, that was a number of years ago. Um, yes, uh, funny enough, it was. So the reason I've been trying to track down guests is because very much like when you were on last time, my co-host had to take a hiatus from the podcast, and no one wants to listen just to me talk for an hour and a half. So I thought, well, let's get some of my, who I think interesting friends on, and have them pick movies that they want to discuss and. Um, that's what I did here. I kind of had a list of movies and you chose which one you had the most interest in. Yeah. Uh, ironically enough, not a horror film. Um, nope. And yeah, but I have a, a lot of affection for this film and specifically for, you know, the trio we had talked about, Cassavetes and Falcon mm -hmm. and, and Elaine May. And, um, so immediately upon seeing that film on the, in the list, I was like, oh, that's, that's the one I want to talk about. Perfect. Um, because funny enough, even though this isn't directed by Cassavetes, if I was getting into his films and you hadn't told me that he did not direct this, I would have been probably a little shocked because this feels like it's directly out of his. Oh, yeah. It reminds me of like something like Killing of a Chinese Bookie or something. That would be I was just thinking of that. I was like, oh, that'd be a great double feature as well. Um, with an, another longtime collaborator, um, Ben Gazzara. Yeah, I love that movie. So yeah. normally, I, I I usually like craft a a um, description for the film along with historical context and whatnot. But if you listen to the beginning of the podcast, you'll know that I chose I ran out of time because I chose to go see Indiana Jones instead okay. last night. So instead, I'm actually just going to read the description from the Criterion Collection because they do a nice little a nice job of uh, summing the film up, and then we'll talk about the the everything else right yeah. afterwards so the description says 
Elaine May crafted a gangster film like no other in the nocturnal odyssey Mikey and Nikki, capitalizing on the chemistry between frequent collaborators John Cassavetes and Peter Falk by casting them together as small-time mobsters whose lifelong relationship has turned sour. Set over the course of one night, this restless drama finds Nikki, played by Cassavetes, holed up in a hotel after the boss he stole money from puts a hit out on him. Terrified, he calls on Mikey, played by Peter Falk, the one man, he, sorry, the one person he thinks can save him. Scripted to match the live wire energy of its stars, alongside supporting players Ned Beatty, Joyce Van Patten, and Carol Grace, inspired by real-life characters from May's own childhood, this unbridled portrait of male friendship turned tragic is an unsung masterpiece of American cinema. Peter Falk is Mikey. I got a terrific suggestion for you, Nick. I suggest you find somebody you can trust. John Cassavetes is Nikki. They're gonna kill me, Nick. They're gonna kill me. Mikey and Nikki. On a night like this, there are no rules. You give me that in 30 seconds. You hear me or I'll kill you. I'm gonna die. You're not gonna die. What do you think they're planning? To shoot you in a movie house? Mikey and Nikki. I'm really getting the treatment tonight. Tonight's my night. On a night like this, there is no trust. They're going to kill me. Honey, I'm serious now. Well, I'm not interested. I'm coming with you. There is no time. know it for a fact they're gonna kill me you are not gonna die on a night like this there is no choice peter falk john cassavetes mikey and nikki written and directed by elaine may ma if anything happens to me mikey did it so as so the way as i said before the way this podcast came to be was when i realized i had a bunch of episodes to fill out i i I started just going through and being like, what movies have I been wanting to see? And mm-hmm. for whatever reason, kept putting off. And then I would reach out to people who I knew I'd want on the show and be like, do you have an idea for a movie? If not, here's what I have. And you saw the list. And out of everything I had on there, you you chose Mikey and Nikki. You're actually the only person who chose Mikey and Nikki. Um, so that is especially a reason I thought he, uh, you were a perfect choice for this. As I said, this was my first time seeing this movie. Um, What's your relationship with this movie? So as uh, you and I had talked about a little bit earlier, like I've I've followed Cassavetes in it for a number of years, and I got really into him around 2013. So I just went through his entire filmography, you know, essentially starting from the beginning with Shadows and getting into his more studio work like Too Late Blues and Child is Waiting. And then when once I got into Faces and Husbands, that's when I really started to fall in love with his stuff um, and A Woman Under the Influence. So in conjunction with that, obviously, I wanted to look into a number of his films in which he was just uh, an actor. And in terms of like his backstory, a lot of what he did was essentially would act in these films that he really had no emotional connection to. Um, but a lot of what were big films, like he was in The Dirty Dozen in 67 and he was in Rosemary's Baby in 68. Um, and, and it's funny watching those because in contrast to the work that he directs, they're so dissimilar. Um, yeah. it's, and it's, so it's when crazy. I came, yeah, when I came across 
Mikey and Nikki, and I saw that Peter Falk was also in that. I was like, oh, I absolutely have to see it. And as I mentioned to you earlier, I was shocked that he didn't direct it because it very much feels like a Cassavetes directed film, not to negate the worth of Elaine May because she's obviously brilliant in her own right. And there's so many great um, kind of funny little quirky stories about her and the collaboration that she had with the two guys on set um, and just how they interacted with each other and the relationships that they had with one another. And so when I saw that film, I, I really fell in love with it because of that Cassavetes sensibility, also Peter Falk and um, the fact that it really did feel like a film that he had directed regardless that he did not direct it. And, and we were saying this pairs really, really well with like killing of a Chinese bookie. And I know you could say that just because of the kind of, mob like um, mm -hmm. element to it but if you removed that from mikey and nikki i would love the film just as much honestly the the stuff that probably speaks to me the least in the film are the scenes where we're dealing with the more um kind of crime latent material like uh when we're dealing with uh ned Beatty's character kenny and he's kind of in the car or when they're having the meetings about how to track down nikki that stuff isn't as interesting to me as the material when we're just with Mikey and Nikki and and when they're talking about the material that really has nothing to do with the film um in particular the graveyard scene is just oh it's it's such a heavy hitting scene and there's so much to unpack with this film um and I showed this actually in my film communication class and um how did it go over? what's that how did it go over Good, good. Uh, it was it was pretty divisive or polarizing, as I like to say. Some of the students really, really liked it. The students who loved it were the ones that gravitate more towards character and and don't really care about plot. And one of my students specifically said she was like she was like I don't. She was like one of the most important things to me in film are characters. She was like so the fact that it was light on plot, like I loved the fact that we could just hang out with these people. Um, and then the students who were more interested in plot and kind of the action oriented, you know, stories they, they, they it just didn't really speak to them. Yeah. Like for me, like this is in what I guess that I had you on seasons ago to talk about slow burn this in, in its own way, like, while there's always things happening. It's a slow burn in that it's a slow burn gangster film in that it takes a while for that element of the story to unfold like there's always things happening but it takes its time for you to kind of really figure out what the stakes are and yeah. to figure out what what is happening at any given time where each person's allegiances fall and for all of this to unfold um but ultimately it's just so gripping because of of the characters mm -hmm. um and actually, funny enough, I just I had to point this out since you said you went through a complete marathon of Cassavetti's work, which I need to do at some point. Um, um, and we were talking earlier about um, big, uh, you know, horror franchises. There is a connection between Cassavetti's and a big horror franchise. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's, in terms of his uh, acting? Uh, no, just in general, like a, a small little tidbit um, in, in uh, Halloween Kills, they're watching Minnie and what, what was it? Minnie and Minnie and Moskowitz, which I just think is hilarious that in a big budget uh, Halloween film, they snuck a Cassavetes reference in. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember watching Halloween Kills and I was shocked. Um, but then if you dive a little bit deeper, um, David Gordon Green, who's the director of the Halloween franchise, comes from a very, very independent background. Oh, definitely. 
And if you, and I've listened to his commentaries and he's actually talked about Cassavetes before. Um, and especially if you watch his early films like George Washington and all the real mm-hmm. girls, they also have very much that kind of Cassavetes like sensibility where it's all about character. It's all about definitely um, what's going on with the people involved as opposed to what is the plot per se. Um, which, I mean, that opens a whole other can of worms because, you know, I, I, I think he's a really wonderful director. Um, yeah, I've, I'm still, so with me, when it comes to a filmmaker that I really like, I actually sometimes struggle to marathon their films because I, I like having like little pockets of their filmography to discover. Okay. Um, so like, I, I know I've, I've, I've seen um, a killing of a Chinese bookie. I believe I've seen a woman under the influence and I've seen um, husbands, but that one was a long time ago. Uh, and I, what I, but he's one of the, he's, he's, he's kind of an exception where, especially after, you know, we will talk about Elaine May who actually directed this film, but she owes a lot in terms of the style of this to Cassavetes. Um, but especially after watching this film I was like, man, I just, I would love to now I really just want to go through his filmography in order and, um, experience them instead of um, kind of just picking and choosing throughout and just kind of seeing his, his growth as a filmmaker, because what I found so fascinating about this. So Nick, Mikey and Nikki came out in 1976, but, I, but Elaine may had planned this film for like 10 years prior. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of had, she, she at least had the script planned out now, whether or not she intended to shoot it the way she did that, I can't speak to, but it it is fascinating to me that this type of filmmaking and with the circles that Elaine may ran in was just in the zeitgeist enough that like, I truly believe that she would have made this movie this way, whether Cassavetes was in it or not, because that is the way that I truly felt she wanted to make this film. Yeah. And I think, you know, classic case of the stars line is because, I'm sure she was influenced by him and I'm sure she definitely would have had that kind of aura to the film. Um, Yeah. Regardless of the fact that he's not in the film, I'm sure that that style and that influence, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and and very much in doing the research and just reading about her is like, she was opposed to the studio system and they had some problems in, in post-production because the studio was demanding, you know, the film and she just in, in, you know, in very much a Cassavetes like fashion, she was, she was going against the grain going against the man, you know, and, and doing it her way. And I obviously applaud her for that, regardless of the fact that they ran into studio problems. Um, but, you know, they shot, they shot over a million feet of film. So I can't imagine the editing, the editing hurdles that they had, which is just unreal, let alone editing that much digitally, but doing it by hand, which would have had to have been done that way back in 1976. is just and unreal. I'm- I would love because one one thing I love about about Lane May too is uh, at the point that this was made, she was only the third woman to ever be invited to the director's guild. Mm-hmm. Um, and one thing that I feel like a lot of people sometimes forget about the 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 job of a director is because nowadays with um, lo- low budget filmmaking being what it is, and you know you can go out with a relatively inexpensive camera. You can write a script. You can go and shoot a movie right now. I feel like a lot of people forget sometimes the role of the director before everything else is to get a performance. Right. And 
with her background in acting and improvisation, I would love to see what her what her shooting script looked like versus what it ended up being. Yeah, because with actors like who's as good as fuck is Cassavetes and Peter Falk. I imagine there was so much that was just being found in the moment, especially with the style of acting that uh, I don't remember which school of acting both Cassavetes and Falk came from. But hell, they had um, uh, uh, Sanford Meisner in the fucking movie. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So for any of you acting nerds out there, um, (laughs) like I I would just love to see that the way that this was built, because like this movie very much like Cassavetes films, it just feels like. From its from the acting to the shooting to the editing, it's just improvisation. It's jazz. It's just yeah. finding it. Yeah. So yeah, one of the really interesting misconceptions about Cassavetes was, and he, I can certainly see it, and I thought this too was like, oh, it's all improvised. Um, but he was very, very, um, he was very into, he was very much into writing these scripts. And so even something like Faces, which people consider like the best improvisational film of all time. Like he had like a 200 page script for that film. And mm-hmm. um, Peter Falk was saying like, I, he wrote everything and it, he just had this way of writing that made it feel like it was improvisatory. And a lot of times what they would do, and this is, this was also what I was kind of referring to when I was saying like, Oh, so much of that influence and so much of that Cassavetti's sensibility from his films had kind of carried over was because they would also prepare and rehearse the same way that he would also do with Falcon like they had done on, um, they had worked um, specifically on Husbands together, which was a Cassavetes directed film. So it was John Cassavetes, Peter Falk and Ben Gazzara who were in that film. It's a great And what they did on that film and a lot of his other films and what they certainly did on Mikey and Nikki was, and in listening to the interview with Michael Hausman, who's the producer on Mikey and Nikki said it was so frustrating is because the three of them would just sit in a room for all morning and just, they would rehearse and then rewrite the rehearsal because they would improv during the rehearsals. Mm-hmm. And then they would simply just dictate that, rewrite the script according to what great lines they came up with during improvisation and then rewrite it. And then that would essentially be their shooting script. So Michael Hausman was like, some days we would shoot before lunch. Some days we wouldn't get off a shot until after lunch. Um, and so it's this way of just kind of finding it. And there's also some great, one of my favorite kind of anecdotes that I heard was that they were shooting the graveyard scene. And back in the day, when you shoot on film, you only get about 10 minutes per magazine. The magazines are the big things they put on top of the camera. And they were going through the scene and said about minute six, they just started improving. Um, so essentially they would start on script and then just kind of get away from the script eventually. And they knew they had run over 10 minutes and he was still in the scene. And Cassavetes was like, you know, I'm pretty positive. Like there's no film left in that camera. And Elaine May had just said, no, I just love what you're doing. Just keep going. Just keep going. He's like, no, there's no, like, there's nothing to be shot. Like, why are we going to keep going? She was like, I just, I don't want you to stop what you're doing. And I I really love that. I mean, as, as silly as that sounds, um, it just goes to show like the love that she has for the craft and like you're saying for the, for the performances. Um, and that way of working is obviously not conducive to a studio, which are exactly the problems that like Michael Hausman had, had talked about, um, you know, because this was um, backed by a studio, unlike a lot of Cassavetes work. Um, and that's where he tended to find himself in the most. And Elaine May too, is when they were working under the confines of these studios and so you can even read, you know, Cassavetes is primarily known for, you know, outside of his acting, like Rosemary's Baby. But he had a lot of problems with Polanski on that set and just in terms of, of the way they, they worked together. And so he, as much as 
as well as he did within in terms of his performances, he really didn't like operating within the studio system. And he does have a few studio movies like Too Late Blues and A Child Is Waiting. And then he essentially just abandoned that and went back to doing it his own way. And I believe he had he had owed the same amount of money on his house when he died from the point in which he took out um, his first mortgage. He just kept refinancing it and then using the money to pay for his own films, which is just, that's just, you would never think that for somebody who we consider to be an established, what feels like a Hollywood icon, but knowing like, oh, he's like actually a true independent at heart. And they all are. Um, yeah. And I always really respond to that. Cause like, I remember when I, um, you know, in film school, like even though none of us had any money, I remember some professor who had worked in Hollywood one time said, you know, like, oh, you don't you don't put your own money into your films. Like, dude, we're students. We have no choice but to put our own money in this. What, but whatever. But then to hear that there are people who had really influential careers who just continue to back themselves. Mm -hmm. That I think that's 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 so fucking inspirational. He Absolutely. knew he knew he wanted to make what he wanted to make. And he would do bullshit work that he didn't care. Like people would view him as like, oh, he's a movie star or whatever. Those jobs he didn't want to do. That was that was the equivalent of him having a nine to five. That was the equivalent yeah, of him right. clocking in every day, doing <laughs> something he didn't give a fuck about. So he can take his money and go make the shit he wanted to do. Yeah. And it, it really is tragic in knowing that, yes, he's revered now. And there's you know books and there's documentaries. And he's got his own Criterion box set. It's just, up. he would never have guessed. I mean, these films were not revered back then like they are today. Uh, a lot of these films were just written off. Like uh, only a few of them really, really were impactful at the time. I know Faces had a couple Academy Awards and a woman under the influence had done really well. But a lot of these were just, a lot of his own films were just, were bombs, um, which is really sad because now if you look back, all of his films are extremely tight. Um, even within his studio films, um, you can definitely see a lot of his of his own voice inside those films um, that he's trying to get out um, that may be kind of suppressed by the studio system, which is then why he goes back to doing it his own way. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's not to take away from Elaine May because I think I, so much is owed to her in this film. And she, interestingly enough, she doesn't have a lot of, Credits to her kind no, of director. She, she's, she's written four films. Yeah. Or sorry, directed four films. Um, and it's, you know, and so this was the last film she did before she did Ishtar, which is the film mm -hmm. that is often considered to be the film that ruined her career, which I think is right. unfair because it's, it's, I think it's actually kind of a uh, fun film, but that's mm -hmm. beside the point. You know, if, you know, uh, female filmmakers, they, they got one chance that they fucked it up. That's all they cared about. Yet, you know, they'll keep giving other people chances upon chances. But like Elaine May, she was such a talent. Like she, she was, she was an actor. She uh, had a really successful um, a partnership with Mike Nichols. Mm -hmm. And then she continued to write films. Like uh, thankfully, because her voice is like, she wrote uh, Tootsie. She wrote Reds. She wrote, um, um, hell, she wrote the American adaptation of the birdcage. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's she had such a, a unique voice and what I think is so what I found so endearing about this film was 
the way that she portrayed male friendships mm-hmm. where in that it's she has almost a reverence for these characters they're not good people they're not um and she's not ever trying to soften them you know I, recently on this show we watched um once upon a time in america and mm-hmm. that film you have bad people doing bad things but they're but the movie has such a has the wrong type of reverence for them where it's making them feel like good guys, even though they're doing fucked up shit. Elaine May is never one to turn away from. These are bad people. They're not, they're not doing good things, but she has, she, she still wants us to care about them, but know that they're in the wrong. Yeah. She doesn't pass judgment on these characters and the characters are who they are. And especially once you get into kind of the latter half of the second act or even beginning of third act when they go over to Nell's apartment, that's where it gets really rough. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Some of those scenes are, or that scene in particular at Nell's apartment is really tough to watch. Um, but again, it's just kind of like, and even the things they say, but it's just, it's the characters are who they are. And as much as you, and that was one of the difficult things amongst my students is that how despicable these characters were. And, you know, even, even when we're looking at Mikey's character, I think there's so, especially on this rewatch, there was so much that I took away that was just so heartbreaking in the things that he said. And if we're going to get into the, the film itself um, and specifically what I'm just referencing is what I really love is that the, the fact that Mikey is setting Nikki up, in a lot of in 98% of other films that would be saved for a reveal in the latter half of the second or at the beginning or end of the third act. Um, it would be your eureka moment. Like, Oh my God, he set him up. So a lot of the film would be this is he, or isn't he, but we're introduced to Ned Beatty's character 20 minutes into the movie. And we know right off the bat that, Oh, he is being set up by his friend. So witnessing and kind of experiencing the rest of the film and their interactions with that knowledge makes it so heartbreaking and makes so many of the things that Mikey says hold so much weight as opposed to having to go back and look at those things in retrospect and on a second view and be like, okay, I know these things now. So how do these things that he says and how does his behavior kind of play differently? But the fact that even on a first viewing that if you knowing that 20 minutes in the movie, every subsequent scene feels so much more impactful because we know that. And Again, the movie doesn't care about the plot per se. It is about the characters. And I love that it kind of just gets that out of the way. And anytime we got cut to Nebedee's character, I'm just kind of like, okay, whatever. I want to get back to the, the characters. And the graveyard scene, there, there's no discussion of how are we going to get me out of town? But it's, it's all about kind of their past and, and what they've been through and the history they have with one another. Every heavy subject that could be had between like two friends is talked about in this film. We talk about family. We talk about death. We talk about what happens after you die. Like every single conversation, heavy conversation that you can have with somebody, they go through it. And which is why this movie is so draining. It is extremely draining, emotionally speaking, because it's it's reflective and it makes you reflect on your own relationships you have with people. Um, and there's so many lines that I wrote down specifically, and there's so many of those heartbreaking moments. And um, I'll definitely save it for later, but my thrill house moment, um, I, I knew what it was right when it happened in the movie. And it was just, it was such a gut punch. Um, but yeah, we'll get to that when we get to it. 
Yeah, and you're right. This movie is draining, and it's it's a movie that it's so creative in that you're able to relate to the characters without having to relate to the characters, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. You know, I don't relate to Mickey. Sorry, Mikey. I always do that. Mikey and Nikki in uh, because like I don't relate to the, to who they are as people. I'm a very different person than they are. I don't relate to what they do for work. I don't relate to having to, you know, uh, live in paranoia because I ripped someone off. But what I can relate to is I've definitely had friendships that should have ended a long time ago. And I've been unable to get myself out of. I've Mm. definitely been in friendships where you're the person who is supposed to be your friend is setting you up to look like a fool. Like Mm. the the scene in the apartment where in Cassavetes tells him like, oh, she, you know, go give her a kiss. She's, you know, she, this is what she does knowing that that's not going to go over well. Yeah. And while I haven't been in that same situation, I've I've had friends do things to make me look bad, to make themselves look and feel better. So all of these moments were hitting. And then, like you said, we find out the reveal that Mikey is setting up Nikki really early on. <clears throat> and it's like Hitchcock's view of how to build suspense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you heard, uh, for for listeners who have not heard this analogy, Alfred Hitchcock says, you know, to build suspense, if you if you have two people talking and a bomb goes off, that gives you one moment of fright. But if you establish that there's a bomb underneath the table and then two people are talking about baseball or whatever the fuck, it adds a lot more tension and suspense to what's going on because it adds new weight to everything they're doing. Um, so knowing early on that Mikey is going to fuck over his friend really just adds more weight as we, as they build upon the reason it's getting, it's gotten to this point. And even the fact that Mikey is sharing these sentimental moments with Nikki where things were great and they have known each other. And I don't ever doubt for a moment that Mikey loves Nikki. He just can't have them in his life anymore. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm so glad you brought that up because we don't, I love that it's never like, okay, this is exactly what happened in, in the dealings that went wrong. It's just like, you, you know, you know, the basic plot points. And again, Elaine May is not interested in kind of the, the crime like um, aspect to the film. It, it is all about the, the two characters, but what I really, I feel love- like, the, I feel like she had made them criminals just so she can have that ending and for it not <laughs> to be random as fuck. Right. And, and to kind of, to counter all that, that kind of, the you know mob like element uh, of the film is that all their conversations and everything that they talk about um, are situations that we could go through. And uh, one of the examples that sticks out in my head, and it was just it was such a heartbreaking story, is when I forgot the name of the third party's character, but it's when um, Mikey is talking about how he saw Nikki at a restaurant and he walked past them, and Nikki said get that guy back. I forgot to give him our order. And he's mm-hmm. like, I, he's like, I said that joke for you. And he goes, no, you said it for the other guy. And I'm just like, Oh, that is something that we could all experience. Mm-hmm. Um, and like you were saying that scene, when they go to, to Nell's apartment, it's, it's, you know, maybe we haven't been through that, but the idea of a friend trying to embarrass you, like we've all been through that. And it is those moments when you just kind of, and to kind of add to that, the moment that I, and you're just saying, 
how Nikki or Mikey essentially feels like, oh, this isn't somebody that I can have in my life anymore. And unfortunately, in their line of work and in the life that they subscribe to, that often leads to death as opposed to just saying like, okay, I'm going to move away from this person and just not associate with them. But one of the most telling moments to me in the entire film, going off your point of why Mikey doesn't feel like Nikki can be in his life anymore. And when I really like when it really sets in for me is after the watch debacle mm. and there's a moment after that, that scene broke my heart for some oh. reason. And then like, oh, yeah. we, they never established the sentimentality of that watch until it happened, but I felt it. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, Nikki's cracking jokes. He's like, Oh, do you have the time? And he's like, he's like, my father gave me that watch. He goes, Oh, well you had it long enough. Um, Mikey just starts shaking his head and he looks at him and he doesn't say it, but the look on his face to me just says, this is why I can't have you in my life anymore. Like this is like, this is basically sums up all the reasons why I don't want to be around you anymore. But then at the same time, like you get this feeling like he is kind of, he's going back and forth constantly about this decision that he's made. Did he make the right decision? And obviously that all culminates in that final, that amazing last shot of him just staring. Or the the scene the, 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 the one that really got me was in the the cemetery scene and once again we have the superior position so mm-hmm. we know what's going on when nikki's just fucking around and he'd be like you know i'll tell my mom if anything happens to me it's all mm-hmm. mikey's fault and the way that peter falk mm-hmm. delivers that line he's not like fuck you nikki it's utter panic yeah because it's almost like a moment like, has he figured this out? Um, you know, is him, him shouting this to everyone? Am I going to somehow get fingered for this? You know, it's the way that he delivers that is gut wrenching. And I also love that Cassavetti or so Nikki never responds to the way that he says it. Right. Well, he says, so yeah, I know that scene spoke to me too. He says, if anything happens to me, Mikey did. And Mikey says, take that back. You son of a bitch. Take that back. And that definitely can be read, like you're saying, in a couple different ways. Like you can read it in one sense of him saying, like, you know, is he going to feel guilt? You know, is is he going to be the one to blame for it? Yada yada yada. But also, it's to me, it was this idea of like he doesn't want Nikki to know that, and that guilt of Nikki knowing that Mikey set him up is just too much for him to bear. And that's obviously what the whole ending is about—the fact that. Nikki dies knowing that Mikey set him up and then Mikey realizing that and Mikey fighting the whole film of trying to lot, not let Nikki in on this and, and that back and forth that he has, like, you know, I think as much as kind of, you know, Nikki is like the kind of, he's just so bombastic. He's so flamboyant that you can't help, but like kind of walk away from the film thinking about him more than you do Mikey because he is a much more subdued character. But to me, Mikey's character has so much more to kind of uh, pick apart and examine because of that guilt and because of that weight that he's carrying around about, okay, I'm setting up my best friend, but then you really, you know, he never says it, but you, there's so many things that he says and does that aren't direct that makes you realize, or at least in my interpretation that he's second guessing, even in the, the that scene where it's him and uh, Kenny, um, and I forgot the name of their boss, but they're in the office towards the end. And Kenny's like, okay, I'll just drive around the neighborhood. He's like, no, you can't. And he keeps telling him, oh, like, I no, love you love that scene. He's like, you can't drive around my neighborhood. People are going to see you. He's like, okay, I'll drive around twice. And he's like, we've got patrol. And you're like, oh my God. He's like, 
is starting to like really like like because it's it's getting to that moment it's like all right this is it and then he because he also knows too you know because he he says that line and it's like well how, how you know nikki's we, how do we know nikki's gonna come to my house he knows nikki's gonna come to his house yeah he yeah. knows you know like just instantly that he's gonna come to his house right right yeah and then even before that i thought it was so interesting that the first time he gets in uh kenny's car and they're gonna talk he keeps referring to Nikki as the guy. He never yeah. calls him Nikki. He keeps calling him the guy, almost as if to kind of take away from the fact that he's a person. It's almost like in that conversation that he's having with Kenny, it's like, oh, if he just calls him, refers to him as the guy, he he just feels like another hit for for them, right? As opposed to him referring to him by his first name and the fact that he is a friend, um, trying to dis- disassociate himself from that friendship and just say, okay, if I can take, give myself a little distance, maybe it won't be so hard, especially when I'm talking to, you know, th- this person who's going to be responsible for ultimately. Yeah. And, <laughs> it's, and, and, it, and it's interesting when, when Mikey got in the car with Kenny, um, which I, I'm kind of with you though, the whole subplot with Kenny is not my favorite. However, I do weirdly like um, the idea of, you know, cause it's, it's very uh, counter trope in that you know usually when you have a hitman or assassin one in a movie like this they're like they have a really specific persona it's you know calm cool collected type of this guy's just kind of a schlubby dude yeah who is not very good at that i like it, my favorite scene of him is when he's like in the car with mikey and talking about you know like, you know after after food and lodging i'm barely gonna come out on this yeah. <laughs> it's, just, it's a side of the of, of his work that is never seen and i kind of love that yeah but when when mikey's in the car with him i kept thinking oh is he gonna try like is is he's getting second thoughts is he gonna try to lead him the wrong direction but he was mm-hmm. actually very unhelpful throughout all of that because like because uh, kenny was like well it'd be easier if i if i knew where we were going and mikey wasn't really giving him directions they're just driving around aimlessly um so I, I couldn't tell. It's like, does he truly not know where Mikey's, where Nikki's going? Is he stalling? Yeah. And I don't think he necessarily knew, but it wasn't until that scene that we just talked about later on where their boss is, you know, telling Kenny to show up at Mikey's house. And he then he is stalling that it becomes apparent that, oh, shit, like he he feels on the fence about this. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of that tension for me in the film doesn't necessarily come from, I was like, okay, is he going to finally, are they going to cross paths um, with the hitman and whatnot? It, for, a lot of it's for me is, is watching Peter Falk and, and his character. Yeah. He never says it out loud. And that is, that is the most kind of blatant example we get of it is when he is being very defiant of them kind of trolling his neighborhood. Um, just the anxiety that he, that character is holding of just like, you know, and we all go like, we all have those moments where you're just trying to buy yourself more time, usually for something that's not nearly as dramatic, but when you're just like, <laughs> well, I need, you're just like, I need to finish this or like, okay, this person's waiting on me and I need to get here. Or I need to do this. This is that to the nth degree. Mm-hmm. And, and Peter Falk is such an exceptional actor and he can do all that and he can, you can exude all that without having to say it and without saying it directly. I also love, um, cause I hadn't thought about it, but I, I looked it up. He was shooting Columbo simultaneously with this. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually got to the point where they were going over schedule so much that they had to move the production to Los Angeles. So that way they could shoot this movie in between 
shoots of Columbo, which would never fly today with yeah. the way the contracts work. Yeah. Um, you know, you wouldn't be able just to get your lead actor on one of the biggest shows on television to go make some cheap avant-garde fucking gangster movie in between yeah. shots. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I loved Peter Falk before this movie because like, I, I knew I am from, obviously, Columbo. Um, you know, I, I don't trust people who don't like Columbo. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, you know, uh, he plays a really over-the-top character from uh, in Murder by Death. And, like, I had seen him on a lot of, like, more comedy-adjacent roles. Um, but seeing the things that he was doing with Elaine May and John Cassavetes, it's just... it. And then uh, Wings of Desire, just think that was later on in his career, obviously. But, you know, just seeing the top, like how good of an actor he truly was. Yeah. Yeah. And you yeah. Know, everything and from and like, no one enters a room the way Peter Falk does. Yeah. And he's just so distinct. And again, you've got that glass eye, which just like that wouldn't fly in Hollywood today, which is yeah. so sad. And he, and he knows he has such like he knows how like he has such control over that glass eye because there's definitely times where he's moving his eye in a completely different direction, knowing his eye won't move, like to get reactions. Yeah. He's not I, hiding from the fact that he has a glass eye. Yeah. And yet you can still read every single emotion on his face. Um, and that's what some students were saying. They're just like, Oh, that was kind of distracting. Um, and others are just like, Oh, no. I mean, because you're so conditioned, especially nowadays, you're so conditioned for actors to look a certain way, even if they are a little bit older. Um, and even if they are playing older characters, like these characters are, um, we're still expected to have at least somewhat of a, a particular presentation. So the fact that, you know, they look like real people. And that is my favorite thing when watching a film is that somebody looks like, oh, this looks like a real person. This doesn't look like an actor. And that's no shots fired too, because a lot of people who do look like quote unquote actors can deliver those performances. Yet at the same time, they don't look like the people that you know. And regardless of the fact that this is surrounding these people who are in the uh, who are in the mafia or in the mob, um, they still look like real people. Peter Falk and John Cassavetes looks like somebody that you would see on the street. And like, uh, and just the way that. John Cassavetes made himself look in this film because I, 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 oh, I, looked, I looked up that like he just intentionally just made himself look as sickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Like this movie is just nothing but like sweating yeah. and yelling, <laughs> and like yeah. I, I imagine by the time that Mikey shows up in this film, Peter, uh, not Peter, fuck, um, John, uh, Nikki had been wearing the that fucking suit. For a long time, I imagine mm-hmm. he does not smell very good. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, just like, even like there's the, just so uh, much texture to this film and these characters. And yeah, well, just even you know right off the bat when when he walks in and Nikki is just such a mess and there is this almost like kind of mother sensibility where Mikey is like let the train come in and he's trying to feed him mm-hmm. the jelly cell. Um, yeah and he's just an absolute mess and you're like okay i know the environment and the world that this film is inhabiting and either right off the bat you're with it or you're not and you and you know right off the bat the film that you're getting into um and you if you're not with it like you're really not going to be with it as the film gets deeper or even if you're going in expecting a traditional crime drama you're not going to get it um and those expectations are going to be thwarted and 
I think that can go for a lot of their films, both Elaine Mays and Cassavetes, is that any expectations you have are definitely not going to be met. Or if they are met, they're going to be subverted and and kind of given to you in a completely different way, which is why these films are so refreshing, why they hold up. Yeah, and like she, Elaine May, with only out let's say three films because by the time ishtar came out that was like almost that was like late 80s but yeah. her her first three films you know she's running in the same circles as these mythalized movie brats you know yeah coppola scorsese spielberg all of them and she's making just as interesting work of work if not more interesting than some of them mm-hmm. and like i said this is the the last film she made in like nine years yeah, yeah. I mean, even Heartbreak Kid, that was remade. Um, mm-hmm. And A New Leaf, that's hugely popular. And I know she performs in that film, and that was yeah. one of My mom that... loves A New Leaf. Oh, she really? She thinks Walter Matthau was the funniest fucking person <laughs> Yeah, she seems like inside and out, like um, performance and outside is just like such a kooky character. And I mean that in the best way possible. Uh, of Just like the way she behaved, the way things she say. Like, yeah, Michael Hausman, who was the producer, was just saying how charming she was and just how she was able to get everybody on board just like even in ways that she would frustrate them like she did it in such a charming way like one of the things michael husband was talking about he was like okay so the guys have to go from a to b how do they get there is it going to be by train is it going to be by car is it going to be by boat like how do you want them to get from here to here and she just goes those all seem like great ideas you'll figure it out and then he's just like okay but again that's that freedom that she's giving these people yeah um, which are, and that's why Cassavetes and Falk wanted to work with her. And that's why Falk wants to work with Cassavetes is because he goes from this structured, especially, you know, back then television back then is not what television is no. today. Um, so it's this opportunity to play in this new sandbox and to try something new. And, and that's why you watch Columbo and then you go and watch a Cassavetes, you go watch a woman of the influence or Mikey and Nikki. And you're just like, Oh my God, this is what Columbo's doing outside of, of the show. This is what Falk is doing. It's cause yeah, it gives them a chance to, to try something different. And that's why it certainly makes sense when you watch the Cassavetes directed films and then you watch the films he acted in. And then someone tells you like, Oh, he hated the movies that he acted. In. It's like, Oh, I can see that. Cause these are nothing like the films yeah. that he wanted to make. And even in the films that he acts in of his own, which would be like husbands and he's got a small part of me and Moskowitz um, and love streams, um, especially kind of like being the big ones. Um, they're just completely different performances. Um, yeah. As opposed to, yes, say something like his character in dirty dozen, or I don't know, I'd say guy. I feel like you could pull him from Rosemary's baby. I feel like you could put him into a cast. Yeah. <laughs> so I, uh, and um, as I was preparing for this episode, I was list- I was listening to an interview with the film critic Richard Brody, mm-hmm. who was talking about this film, and he had a really interesting like perspective on it. It was it was it was it was actually an interview with Richard Brody and film critic Carrie Ricky on the Criterion Disc, and they were talking about how so, like I said, Elaine May is a writer director, but she has her she has her start in acting and in doing improv. And they one reading they had on this film. So, you know, the whole movie is about like the, the overall story is about John Cassavetes character, Nikki, stealing money from the mob. Essentially, we don't we don't necessarily get details how, but we don't need it. Uh, right. Stealing money from the mob. Um, and then because of that, they want him dead. And it's the one reading they had on this film that I thought was really interesting was that 
one could view the fact that view this film as being take the money aspect out of it and have it be about the mob is traditional uh, theater actors and how these big produ- big Hollywood productions are taking <laughs> their resources and and stealing them away from them. Mm-hmm. And um, and they made they made it even more um, on the nose with that the fact that the two mob bosses are played by Sanford Meisner who created <laughs> who created the Meisner acting acting technique. And for those of you who aren't who haven't studied any sort of acting Meisner's technique the best way to describe it is that it focuses on more external inspiration and um and um you have to re it's a lot more reacting to your fellow uh actors and everything around them so it's very you know improvisational based you're not like you know I think Stella Adler's style of acting was more so using internal feelings like you know you're sad so picture your dog dying or something this was just using what you have around you and what yeah. other people are giving you to create a performance and so they had um him and they had william hickey which uh uh he also played uh the 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 uncle in um um christmas vacation which i think is really funny yeah. but uh william hickey he was also an acting teacher um um who started under um I think he also started started under Meisner. Regardless, uh, they have these two big time acting teachers playing the mob bosses. And then you have these two actors who are very much indebted to their style of acting, who are constantly taking these big Hollywood jobs and being pulled from the passion pot projects that they'd much rather be doing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's not dissimilar say like it always confuses me when and this could be a good comp is when like people are like oh did you hear so and so is going to direct this marvel movie it's like yeah but they just you don't see any of their voice you don't see any of their singularity that made them special that is what actually got them that job because then they just get put through this machine and they become marvelized and that's similar to like when you see cassavetes in the films that he just acts and you're just like oh these are nothing like the films that i know he wants to make that he has been very vocal about about wanting to make but he can't because studios don't want to make those films um and when he and when they do make those films inside the studio system they run into problems and yeah that's a tale as as old as time i mean you know they even talked about in this film how they were just would run into so many problems because of the fact that it was made under the guise of a studio Mm -hmm. as opposed to getting to do it on their own time and then maybe having and hopefully having to sell that or getting to sell it later so one thing I wanted to ask you, since you you've produced three feature films at this point, correct? Yeah. Thinking from the from the the perspective of a producer, what kind of challenges do you think Elaine may might have run into trying to get this film made, especially on a studio's dime? Yeah, I mean, one of the big. This thing- is a big heady question, so there's no right or wrong answer to it. Well, yeah, just in going back to what one of the things that we've been championing about this film and one of the things that we love about this film is that it's about characters and that it is light on plot. And I think that, you know, I, I don't know too much about the um, reception from your typical movie going audience at the time, but I could certainly see and I witnessed this amongst my students is that you have a certain expectation when going into a film that is about just even in the most broadest sense of the log line someone screws over the mob and now they're after him. We've seen that story a billion times and you're going to have certain expectations of that story. 
So when you go in and you get what is Mikey and Nikki, I could certainly see how if you had the traditional expectations of, you know, of a mob type movie that I just described, you're going to be disappointed. But if you go in expecting what you would think you'd get from somebody like Elaine May, John Cassavetes, and Peter Falk, you're going to be very, very excited and and pleased by that. So, and your question is that yeah, they're they're making these films that they want to make inside the studio, which just don't work, and that's why they run into these problems. Um, and the fact that, especially with someone like Elaine May and the way that she shoots, which is very similar to Cassavetes, is that she never pressured anyone to be ready when they weren't ready. Um, and that's one of the things I really love about her. And that's why she got the performances that she got. And she she was able to make the film that she made is because she took her time. And you can't do that on a studio movie. And even in, in independent films, you just don't have time. Um, I don't know if it was just, I don't care. I'm just, I'm servicing the story, which is, I mean, it's indicative in the fact that they shot over a million feet of film. And I think it said- I, I can't like, believe the studio didn't like, Cause that's a lot of money. Like I'm surprised yeah. this, I, I'm some I'm film. I'm surprised the studio didn't like try to pull her as a director or something like, cause like if, if it, I don't know, I feel like the head of paramount, if they heard that a relatively unproven director, cause let's be mm-hmm. real, even though she directed two films before this, she's a, she's a woman in Hollywood in the 1970s. She's an unproven director in that way, unfortunately. A uh, relatively unproven director is shooting a million feet of fucking film mm-hmm. um, on their dime where um, with two impro- improvisational actors and they're going over time so significantly they have to move production back to L.A. so Peter Falk can continue his obligations to Columbo. Yeah. The yeah, fact yeah. that this movie turned out the way that she wanted it to, and they didn't just fucking fire her and go get Scorsese or someone to come in and finish it is yeah. mind blowing. Also, it just speaks to their talent. The fact yes. that they pulled it off. Um, Cause there's so many ways that this could have gone wrong. And the fact that, and that's one of the reasons among many that I do love her. And I love that this film is that, and I love Cass Vettis as well as they, they always stuck to their guns. They weren't going to make even inside the studio. And there's a, that's a whole other can of worms in terms of, you know, being hired, you know, what's the difference between being hired and are you supposed to service the studio and what they want versus your own vision. And yeah, like I said, that's a whole other can of worms, but in regards to this film, the fact that, yeah, and there's some great stories about how, when she was editing the film, the studio had said to her, they're like, enough is enough. We need to see this film. Like, and they had said to her, Okay. And she was like, all right, you can come see the film at, you know, blah, 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 wherever tomorrow. Um, And she was like, I can't remember the exact details, but Michael Hausman was saying that they showed up and they're like, okay, well, we need to watch it at 10 a.m., not 2 p.m. And so she was like, okay. So the third reel wasn't ready. And she was like, well, if you would have watched it at 2 p.m., it would have been ready. So just this way of her kind of like messing with them is really funny to me. and he was saying like even like one of the reels didn't have sound or or even a track to it. So she would like act it out and she would say the dialogue out loud. It's just is almost this way of just kind of like just like gaslighting the the producers is or not producers, but the studio heads is just so funny to me because you can almost you almost get the sense that like she knows their frustration, obviously, and she knows how, but rather than trying to subdue them and and make um and ease the situation, she's just She's just making it probably worse. Um, but that's why, you know, she's a comedian, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, that to, to my point and to what you were saying about the, the producer question is just, 
you can't put someone like Elaine May, especially when she comes as a package deal with Cassavetes and Falk into a film, into making a film like this inside of a studio is just the fact that it turned out as well as it did is, is extraordinary. Um, and I'm so surprised that there wasn't more tinkering to the film or, and there weren't yes. more research shoots because there aren't, I mean, granted she shot over a million feet of film. So the, the, the question of reshoot shouldn't even be a question <laughs> because you have enough footage to call probably 35 different movies out of that. Um, but there wasn't that talk to say, okay, make it more, to make it more, and maybe there was, and we just don't know about that, but just in my research of like, to make it more mainstream. And I love it for that. And I love her for that. And I love the film for, for what it is. Um, and, and I love how rough around the edges, edges it is. And, you know, Victor Kemper was a cinematographer on this. So mm -hmm. um, he had done stuff at this point, like uh, Dog Day Afternoon and The Gambler. And he had actually directed Husbands, which was the Cassavetes film with Peter Falk. And there's some other funny stories about that, how Victor Kemper left halfway through because he was so frustrated um, with the way the production was working. And by, it by no means was a smooth shoot. Um, and it was chaos. Um, but all shoots are chaos, especially when you're shooting an indie-like film. Yeah, and and like I, the the editing process for this film had to have just been its own level of chaos yeah. to the point where I believe there's two credited editors on this film, John Carter and Shelton Kahn, mm -hmm. um, because it, like you said, there's so much footage that you could call thirty different, thirty five different movies out of this, <laughs> and you know, and the job of an editor is. Mm -hmm. You know, you it's I always view editing as it's it's writing the third draft of the script, yeah. you know, because you write one draft, you shoot a different draft and then you find a third draft while editing. Mm -hmm. And some, you know, some directors keep everything completely to book and, you know, you essentially have to just go through the script and find the best moments and put it together, um, you know, so on and so forth. Like uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, the editor of Halloween, said the original Halloween was the easiest shoot he's ever had to easiest movie he's ever had to cut because John did it all for him on set. Then you have something like this where, like you said, you know, a film magazine, you maybe got like 10, 15 minutes worth of, 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 of footage at a time. And, you know, first six minutes, they're doing, doing the script and then they're improvising. And that's probably where some of the best stuff is coming from. So yeah. then it's like, okay, here's what we have. We are we are going in different directions. How I really like this. How can we tie this in? And then it's it's a Herculean task. Like I, and just I, to, I, just to sit through and watch all those dailies. Yeah, it's as as a filmmaker too. When looking at it from a filmmaker's perspective, um, yeah, it's it's mind blowing because this type of filmmaking and this style and these performances were obviously very influential to the mumblecore movement that took off around 2005 and which were a string of films that were essentially focusing on interpersonal dynamics and relationships and, and foregoing the, the plot-like structure. Again, very similar to the cast of Ace work. But one of the reasons, if not the main reason, that that movement took off was because Filmmakers were able to do it cheap and they were able to do it digitally. So you can shoot for as long as you want. So you get these takes that just go on and on to do that on film 
And, you know, that's why you have these stories like, you know, where the magazine runs out and then Elaine May is like, just keep going, just keep going. I would be so interested to hear all of their perspectives on digital and, and how they would either embrace that because I think it would go either way. I think they would maybe embrace that. And I can't imagine a Cassavetes or Elaine May film like this film shot digitally. And then how different that not, not necessarily would aesthetically look, but just how it would change the overall vibe and tone of the film, because you could have even more to call from. Um, or yeah, who knows, maybe they would be resistant to that. And maybe, and you do hear a lot of filmmakers state that like there is magic in that, that time restraint and who knows, maybe a lot of the magic in these films is because of that time restraint. And they were able to just find that kind of lightning in a bottle in these small takes. Would that be lost if they were able to shoot infinite amount of takes and, and shoot digitally? I don't know. Um, but I think that's one of the fun, fun things we can kind of, examine and try to break down and yeah. we'll never know their opinion because unfortunately two out of three of them are dead you know it's, and you mentioned the mumblecore movement that's like spot on it's like it you know this joe swanberg has a, a career because of movies like this yeah you know and like you look at something like like his film drinking buddies where there was no script mm -hmm. every day he would just give them little notes in terms of here's what we need to accomplish in this scene and just yeah. let the actors find it mm -hmm. um and i i will say I didn't shoot a lot on film, but we both went to the University of Wisconsin Milwaukee, and you don't even, you can't even touch a digital camera at least back then until you completed uh, until you completed your portfolio. <laughs> and you know the the rolls of film that we had, I think we only I think you could only get six minutes out of one of those. Maybe no, actually close, maybe close to three. The, the um, Tri-X reversal, yeah, those were a hundred feet, so we got about three minutes, depending on how good you were at threading it. Um, but yeah, you'd only get. Uh, yeah, about three minutes on that hundred feet. Um, and again, yeah, also. And that was about twenty-five bucks a pop for three minutes of film. Yeah, exactly. So if you if if you just got back essentially what was black leader, that was always uh, a huge disappointment. Yeah, I definitely had those. I actually had a film professor who was way too nice. I don't remember Ken Wood. Um, oh, yeah. I had all of my footage was either overexposed or underexposed. He was such a nice guy. At one point, he's like, you know the couple shots that I can see here are really well composed. <laughs> it's way too nice, but there is a certain magic and almost fear of like, cause when you, when the camera's running through, run, when the film is running through the camera, you can hear it. And mm -hmm. it's every second is money being yeah. thrown away. Yeah. Uh, and then you can also hear it when it's starting to run out. Yeah. And if you're not, Granted, you know, 10 minutes is a little bit better than is definitely a lot better than three. Mm -hmm. But when you can start hearing that getting to the end and, you mm -hmm. know, you still have a little more of the scene to get through, then you have to really start committing to trying to get through it or do what you have to do. And I was actually a little sentimental about uh, when we when I first shot on a DSLR in the early days of DSLR, you with the way that flash memory worked, you could only shoot about 10 minutes a take anyways mm -hmm. so there was a little bit of, of um sentimentalness about the time limit yeah um but yeah i would i, I personally believe that if cassavetes was still alive he'd still you know be out there trying to remortgage his house and he'd probably be you know he probably would have been that guy you know with a vhs camera still trying to make shit 
Yeah. You know, if he couldn't have shot on film, I feel like Cassavetes just wanted to make stuff so much that it doesn't matter what he shot on as long as he could shoot it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, who, who, who knows what, what his viewpoint. Yeah. Be. We don't know. Cause like his, none of his films are like, he's never been that visually stunning filmmaker in terms of the way his movies look. I like the way his movies look, but you know, that's not what people are writing about when it comes to his films. Um, I think I always felt he was, he just, he, the substance was more important than anything else for him. Yeah. And I had written about that in my notes of this film is that even at that, it feels very much like it's not drawing attention to the cinematography of the film. There aren't no sweeping crane shots. Um, everything is either locked down on a tripod and when stuff is moving, um, it's either handheld or if it does look like it might be on a track, um, it's not calling attention to itself. Um, and again, that goes to the point of just like, that's not what is important to them. And he even used to say, and even in this film, there are a lot of moments that are out of focus or someone just like that graveyard scene. There's so many moments where they just fall completely into black um, just because they didn't have the proper setup. Or if they did and they stepped out of the light, you know, they would often say, if it goes soft in regards to the focus, if it goes soft, but I like it, I'm still going to use it. And mm -hmm. I, I love that. It's, it was all I've about. Done, I've done that while cutting my own films. You know, I'll, I'll look at a shot and people tell me, well, that's out of focus. That doesn't look the best, but there's something about it. Yeah. It works. Yeah. And especially if the actor is delivering something so specific and delivering something that resonates with you, um, it's impossible not to keep it in there because of that emotional weight that it holds. Um, and, that, and that's why these films work is because of those moments where, I mean, there's so many shots in this film that are a little bit soft and, um, you know, maybe it looks, I have one of the older DVDs, so I'm sure it looks a little, a lot better on the Criterion um, Blu-ray. Um, but even at that, I'm sure there's a lot of stuff that you can certainly tell isn't, isn't sharp, so to speak. And like we were saying, the graveyard scene, um, and that doesn't matter to me. Like, yeah, if if that happens in something like, you know, maybe a much more technically proficient movie where the cinematography is one of the drawing points, yeah, you're going to notice that. Um, but when it is very much like built into the film itself, I think not only is that something that's accepted, for me, it's like celebrated. And you can't do that with every film, right? Like there's a lot of films where if they apply that same thing, it just wouldn't work but it works in this type of film. And this works in a lot of the, uh, in all those types of films that they made, whether it be husbands or, um, or, you know, say a woman in the influence or faces or what have it. Um, and that's why it's eyes because, you know, you were talking about Ishtar earlier. It's like, you watch this and you're like, okay, yeah, let's go to our next film. And then you're like, this is the film she made after Mikey and Nikki. Yeah. And like, don't get me wrong. I, I personally like Ishtar, right, but it's no, a very different beast of a movie. Yeah. That's what I was referring to. I wasn't referring to necessarily yeah. the quality, but yeah, more so just um, yeah, the overall vibe, the overall look of the film. It's just, and that's why more so what I'm referring to. And when I say like just that, that influence of Cassavetes and that, that type of filmmaking, um, <clears throat> you can see in Mikey and Nikki, it's just so apparent. Um, that influence that they all have over, over the film itself. And 
I love it. I love it because this was pretty far into his filmography as well. Um, this was the same year that Killing of a Chinese Bookie came out. So he was yeah. very much established as, I mean, he literally invented independent filmmaking. Like he is the first, if not one of the first independent filmmakers. Yeah. Um, so he already had, at that time had been financing his own stuff and had already made like Woman and Influence, many husband spaces and, and stuff before that, like his studio stuff. Um, so it was very much part of the kind of filmmaking zeitgeist. Um, I mean, who wouldn't want to play in that? Um, but I can certainly see how a lot of people would be resistant to that. Um, so to embrace that, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I think it's it's definitely one of my favorite films of all time. And it's it's a movie that like I watched it last week to prepare for this because I like to do a little research before I I I talk about anything. And it's I've gone back and rewatched scenes from it multiple times. I was just on lunch yesterday like at, at work and I, I work in healthcare and I was by myself in a, in a, in a room and I just put up my headphones and I, I rewatched that fight, that scene with him fighting in the street. And <laughs> what I loved about that scene is like that scene is choreographed. Like it's two people making love. Yeah. Well, and so scrappy too. It doesn't feel yeah. like it's like not it's a pretty movie fight. It's, it's, <laughs> It's it's you know they 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 both kind of have each other in a headlock and they fall to the ground and it's like I said it's it's two people falling out of love with each other yeah yeah and my favorite moment in that scene is because you know it happened or at least you can assume that it happened um, on accident is when he slips mm -hmm. yeah and it's just it's real it's it's real and it's the moments well, like that the, the and there was one of those near the beginning of the movie after uh, Mikey got the cream um and he's running back through the hallways of, of that shitty motel and he like he nearly slips too yeah and i love that because i'm sure you know with how much they shot i'm sure there's multiple takes of him not slipping but i mm -hmm. love that that's the take that she uses because that's real that's that's yeah. realism um now before i uh i ask you what your 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 thrill house moment is um which is a simpsons reference if you didn't get it um I wanted to talk a little bit about the ending before we wrapped up and just how sobering that ending was. Mm -hmm. Like it was one thing because like through this entire movie, we're following this really kind of shitty hitman mm -hmm. <laughs> played by Ned Beatty. Um, and he seems so incompetent like that he that you just at, the, at a certain point just think that he's not going to be able to to accomplish this there's nothing to fear of him he's almost like a coen brothers character in that where i i'm not afraid of this character but the fear that nikki is giving out makes him into a scary character and then coupled with just oh, that agonizing moment of Mikey pushing up all the chairs against the door so Nikki can't get in as his wife watches on. It's I just like I I, I just stared up at the ceiling for like five minutes after that scene. Yeah. I think what really makes that scene work so well though is what happens before that. And it's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. It's between Mikey and Annie, his wife. Mm -hmm. It feels so genuine because everything that he and Mikey, or excuse me, that he and Nikki had talked about prior is obviously still sitting with him. And he confides in, you yeah, know, I think he a, even asked her, he's like, do I repeat myself? Yeah, I love that moment. That's one of my oh, favorite. I, I love it. It's just because that was such a passing moment 
earlier in the film, but you can see how that got in his head and you can yeah. see the effect that Nikki has on him. And that's what happens. Like your friend says something to you, you go home and you're like, holy shit, do I really do that? Or, or someone or whoever might say like a loved one, a family member, whatever, but it's that same effect. And that's mm-hmm. what that's that kind of uh, callback mm-hmm. is insinuating. And, then, um, and that just, and that scene, like you said, between them talking as the sun is slowly coming up and they're just sitting there yep. in the dark. Yeah. And, what, and go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no. And just like there's, and I also love his, the character of his wife because I assume she knows what he does for a living, but there's mm-hmm. never like, you see the way that Nikki and his wife are. Yes. Compared yeah. to the way that Mikey and his right. wife are. Yes, and there's exactly. just, there's a mutual respect and understanding between the two of them. And they're just two people that feel like they're truly comfortable with each other. Yeah, it's it's very genuine. And one of the reasons why I really love that scene is because and it, why it feels like a breath of fresh air, which is so ironic because it because it comes before the most gut wrenching scene of the film and because it comes after so many scenes in which we're just assaulted with, you know, the language and the bombastic nature of these two characters and just how vocal they are, how loud they are. One thing this is the only critic and this is just my own personal thing with not only this film, but a lot of cast face work is just all of his movies are so loud. People are constantly screaming. And he was a very, very flamboyant character. He was extremely boisterous. He was very loud. Even if you watch some of these behind the scenes, they're, they're amazing because he has so much energy. And that energy is infused into these films, which come across in these characters because these characters are obviously extensions of themselves in a lot of ways, which is why you get so much of that, uh, so much of that honesty. Point being is that scene with Mikey and Annie, it's so quiet and he's just talking to her. It's even lower than room tone and she's just listening to him and she's asking him questions. Like so much of Mikey and Nikki's conversation is about them waiting for their turn to talk or combating one another. But Annie, when she's asking him these questions and she's just, she's being, she's just there for him, right? And that isn't something that we've gotten at all at any point up to this movie is anybody being quote unquote there for somebody. And you could say, Oh, well, you know, what are you talking about? Mikey's there for Nikki the whole time. It's like, yeah, but it's only to set him up. And even, and that's, what's so tragic about this movie is that when they are having these genuine moments and why the film works in terms of giving us that information that he set him up 20 minutes in the movie, as opposed to in the last act is that all these sincere conversations that they have. And, you know, we are talking about where he's like, if any, if anything happens to me, Mikey did we already know that like, and we all, we know all those things. So they don't come as a gut gut punch towards the end. They come as a slap at the face as we're hearing them, because we know what this is all going to lead to, you know, or at least you have a good sense of where this film is going, but for it to be filled with all this rich history. And then for all of that to kind of come to a head between Mikey and Annie is just, I mean, that's amazing writing. And then for it to be in directing and for it to be pulled off, and those performances is great because then, yeah, it, it gets extremely loud again. Um, and the f- fact that Nikki dies knowing that Mikey set him up is just, oh, it's just, I, I think that's, it's not necessarily to me at the, that last shot of fall kind of staring over the couch when he knows, um, when he knows Nikki is dead. I don't think it's necessarily that he's dead. I think it's that he realized that Mikey knows and that's why kind of I, I think that's a callback to earlier when he says, if anything happens to me, Mikey, did he says, you son of a bitch, you take that back because he doesn't want him to know. 
I don't think it's necessarily that he's like, oh, I'm scared that he's going to find out or yeah. that you know, he might run away. It's, it's more so the weight of being like, oh, I don't want this person that was obviously formerly my best friend to know that I set them up. I just, I can live with him dying. I can't live with him knowing that I set him up. Yeah. And cause like, I don't, tr I truly believe Nikki did not know. Like he had no, he wasn't aware at any point throughout this movie, even in the beginning when he's like accusing him, that mm -hmm. was more so paranoia Yeah, than him actually. Cause I, I feel like throughout this entire movie, Nikki was like, Mikey's the only person I can trust. Mikey's the last person who would do this to me. Yeah. And that's actually going to lead into my thrill house moment. Um, when we get to it, um, uh, but yeah, the, the ending itself um, is just, I don't think you can top that. I don't think there's any better way to have ended. No, this, this, this is the only way this movie could have ended. Yeah. And the fact that there's no, there's no music at the end, it just fades out. And then you just hear the traffic and a little bit of that radio music. It's like this weird kind of like recurring tune that plays it but yeah it just sounds like almost like elevator music uh, just plays over the end credits it's just beautiful but uh in terms of that thrill house moment getting back to or in reference to what you're just saying it's also what i find as the most heartbreaking moment of the film and it's when mikey says to nikki after they've gotten in one of many of their spats he says i got a terrific suggestion for you nick i suggest you find somebody you can trust and for me, why that is my quote unquote, like thrill house. And it, it seems like kind of like a passing moment, like, oh, most people probably wouldn't even remember that. Why that's so important and speaks volumes to me is that to Nikki, it feels like it, it might just seem like Mikey feels underappreciated because he has been there for him and he has been the person that he can trust. And it almost feels like to Nikki that maybe he's just insinuating that saying like, hey, I'm the only one that is here for you. So the fact that you don't trust me, you're going to need to find somebody that you can trust. But, and this is also rings true in terms, or that it has that emotional resonance in the moment because of that, again, that fact that we know that he's setting him up, it would be much more of a second viewing thing if you found that out in the last act and then kind of going back and re-examining things he says and being like, oh, okay, cool. You know, it's like a twist in a movie. Like you go back and you, you're like, oh, okay, cool. Now that I know what the twist is, I see everything that's leading up to it. But when uh, Mikey says that, I think from his perspective, it's actually very sincere because of the fact that we know Mikey has betrayed Nikki. He's, he's like, oh man, it's so hard to even like think about it. It's, it's almost as if he's saying, you can't even trust me. So therefore you need to find somebody that you can trust. And to hear that, and for almost for basically Nikki to realize that at the end is 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 what's so tragic about it. And I, truthfully, I don't think you know in kind of the next film that I'm, I'm making is actually very much about friendship, and it's about like loyalty in a friendship. Um, and this film is in a weird way an influence. It is a horror film, um, but I don't think we see a lot of films about friendship. Um, and I think this is one of the films that does it that well um, because for films that are about friendship to go this deep, you, you definitely don't see a lot of it. No, for me. So there, there, I could, there's probably a couple moments that I could cite as being like, as being my thrill house moment, even something as early on as the scene of uh, Mickey roughing up the, the coffee shop clerk. <laughs> uh, yeah. 
Uh, but for me, the scene that just really sticks out to me is right after they have their spat in the street. And it's the closest thing that uh, Mikey has ever done to like admitting what's going on when he says, I just can't do this anymore. Yeah. And he's like, what do you mean? You know, I, I don't think this, I don't think this is working anymore. I don't think, I don't remember his exact words, but he essentially said, you know, we can't, this friendship's not working. Mm-hmm. And Nikki just can't let it go. He's like, fine, yeah. then I'll be your friend. Mm-hmm. And I've been in situations like that where you're struggling to get cut someone out of your life because you do have good memories with them and they're just not getting it. Yeah. Yeah. And that leads in what's so beautiful about that fight. That fight isn't a result of male machismo or someone screwing over the other. It's because he's trying to get away from him because he doesn't want to be his friend. And the reason they get in that fight is because Nikki keeps stopping him because he doesn't want him to be, he doesn't want to be left. So, you know, the reason it gets physical is because he keeps pushing him or he keeps grabbing him, not because of what he said, but because he's trying to leave him and he's, he doesn't want to be left. He doesn't want to be alone. And so I think, yeah, that speaks to exactly what you're saying. So that, that would definitely be my thrill house moment. Um, so any final thoughts on uh, Mikey and Nikki before uh, we wrap up? I just think, yeah, it's, it's an incredible character study. Um, it's definitely one of the films that makes you reflect on your own life and the relationships that you have with other people. And, you know, I talk a lot about this and we talk and we examine a lot of this in my classes. We always talk about the idea of, Watching a movie for an escape and watching a movie in which you're confronted with reality. And this is certainly the latter. Um, And while there is definitely value in films that you go to for an escape and kind of check out of your own head, I love films in which you just, it requires self-reflection. And there's so much of this film that requires you to think about relationships and think about friendships and that essentially let you reflect on your own relationships and your own friendships. And, you know, again, that's what's so beautiful about this film is that, yeah, none of us have ties to the mafia. We're probably never going to be in a situation, hopefully, where, you know, we're dealing with the death of a friend at our own hands. But everything else is what's important about this film. And that's the relationship and the characters and what they're going through. And the fact that regardless of the fact that we don't resonate with the mafia element, we resonate with the characters because they, you know, even though we don't aren't in their line of work, they're still going through everything that we go through. They're still going through the exact same arguments. And that's another great thing is that they're never talking about the job. They're never talking about work or, or, or you did this. I mean, there's a few small conversations, but like the graveyard scene, which is usually the standout scene, it, it's all the heavy stuff. It's all about, you know, the conversations that we have, like what happens when you die? What happens? You know, I wish, you know, this person was still around. I, you, you remember when this person died, you know, he's talking about his brother, um, which I mean, that's a whole other scene that's just like so gut wrenching is when when Mikey's talking about how he lost his brother and, you know, that's had such a profound effect on his life. And 
that he can't let it go. And obviously that leads to that conversation with Annie towards the end. Sorry, I'm rambling, but no, no, it's okay. This this has been a great conversation. Um, So if you've not seen Mikey and Nikki, anyone listening to this, it's currently at the time of recording this uh, streaming on the criterion channel, which is definitely worth your time to subscribe to. Um, I think, I'm not being paid by either of them, but I, I think Criterion Channel and Shutter are two of the most interesting streaming ser- streaming services around right now. Mm-hmm. Um, also, pretty different from each other, but still. <laughs> but also, like that kind of sums up my taste in film, both of those places right there. Um, yeah. And then, obviously, if if you are inclined to purchase physical media, pick up that Criterion edition. At the time of recording, this is a Criterion sale, but by the time this comes out, I don't think that'll be going on anymore. Flash um, so tell uh, before we let you go, Drew, is there anything that you're currently working on that you want to tell people about? Yeah, I'm working on uh, our next feature. It's called Fly Trapper. We're going to shoot that next summer. And then um, hopefully that will be out within the following year. And it's about, yeah, it's about two friends um, and kind of they're struggling with a falling out that they had with one another and how that's affecting their past and how that's affecting their present um, and trying to rekindle that friendship all under the guise of a horror film. If you're interested in the last film I made, They Want Me Gone, that was that came out and was released last fall. So you can find that on Amazon, iTunes, any of the streaming services or services where you would rent films. Perfect. And then um, your other film, uh, it, I thought you had another film too. Uh, when the King Tilts, is that available anywhere? No, uh, that one was, yeah, it was definitely one of those early features where you kind of go back and you're like, you know, fair like, enough. Oh, yeah. Well, if you, if you, if you need any help with the new one, you, you know, oh, where yeah. to find me. Yeah. Um, and, um, th- thanks for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. This was a great conversation. And honestly, like I just watched the movie like last week and I want to watch it again already just after having this conversation. Good. Yeah. Well, I just want to say thanks for having me on. I always love hanging out with you. Always having our conversations, um, especially talking about 4Ks because you were one of the people that got me into that. And so I'm very happy to hop on the 4K train um, and I definitely don't regret it. And uh, well, next time I'm in the Illinois area, I'll have to come over and help calibrate your television and make them look, look even better. Oh, hey, trust me. I The the first night the, the TV came in, I was like, all right, I'm going to watch a movie tonight. I got about three minutes in before I started tinkering. And then I would honestly say, and obviously, and I'm sure you have this too, all the uh, settings written down. On mm-hmm. your- oh, yeah. I've, I've got pictures. Mm-hmm. I have three different settings for, you know, since um, this, is, this is all just, you know, annoying TV talk, but I have an OLED television. So I have different settings for bright room, you know, less bright room, completely dark and oh, yeah. everything. So, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It took me, I would say, and I'm always tinkering but i would say before i was like comfortable watching a movie i'd say it took three weeks <laughs> yeah and i'm I'm, I, I'm still making tweaks too and like if uh it's progressively getting darker in the room and, and like i'll i'll pause the movie and just change to my optimal settings for each for each time or here's a good question do you have any of your standout 4ks that you're like this is my even it might not be your favorite movie of all your collection, but you're like, this is the best like 4k example. Um, Ooh, honestly, one of the ones that truly blew me away, uh, and definitely helped in my enjoyment of the film. Um, vertigo is one of the best looking 4ks I've ever seen. 
Oh, I'm sure that looks gorgeous. Yeah. Well, that that was shot Technicolor too, wasn't it? Yes, it, it was. It was shot Technicolor. Um, it just phenomenal looking. And if you are in, if you are an audio nerd like myself, and you are capable, it is one of the few DTS X soundtracks. Okay. I mean, that's DTS's version of Atmos. Um, they did an upscale of it, which is actually pretty con- pretty great. Um, considering that movie when it was originally released in a 70 millimeter format actually had a six track surround sound back in oh, the 60s. Cool. So they extracted all those elements to do something really interesting with the sound design in that film. Cool. Um, and then honestly, there's a lot of good looking new films. Like uh, you can't go wrong with a lot of them, but uh, Nicholas Winding reference drive in 4k. They just, the second sight films out of the UK just did it a nice big uh, 4k box set of it that they actually went back. They actually got the original colorist and went back to the original coloring house and did the Dolby vision color grade on it. And it looks incredible. Cool. That's great. That's amazing. I'll definitely (laughs) check those out. Um, I'm sure you're already aware of this, but one of my favorite, my favorite types of films to watch on 4k are the, uh, the Italian horror films of the eighties and seventies. The colors of those. Yeah. Incredible. I got a uh, Suspiria on 4K and it's absolutely extraordinary. And then yep. I picked up uh, Lucio Fulci's Zombie, which looks amazing. And also, I'm really excited because Grindhouse is releasing the Beyond, the Lucio Fulci movie on 4K. Ooh. And City of the Living Dead, I know, comes out next month. So I'm really, really excited. But yeah, specifically those those Italian mm-hmm. horror films look yeah, absolutely yeah. extraordinary. And if you are... because. I follow a lot of different pages where they talk about 4Ks and people have a the wrong idea of what a 4K disc is supposed to look like. They think right. 4K disc is going to make it look like a new movie. Yeah. No. If if you love the look of film, right. 4K is is how you're going to get it. Like I've yeah. It's funny you bring the that way up. the grain is reproduced yeah. in 4K is just gorgeous. Yeah, and that was my big concern and um I got another friend who is really into 4K and I was like my concern is that like I don't want to watch these old films like these italian films or what have you and you know it'd be too glossy and just in doing research i know yes you can't technically compare analog and digital and whatnot but they say the equivalent of 35 millimeter would be 4k so technically when you watch a 4k film you're getting the closest representation of what yeah. that film would act that the celluloid itself would actually look like. And then like companies like vinegar syndrome are actually putting like out 16 millimeter films in 4k. Mm-hmm. And yes, technically there's not enough information on right. a 16 millimeter film print to make that worthwhile. However, they're able to just extract every single fucking detail out of those prints. And like I said, if you just the fact that like I can watch a, uh, some older films in 4k and see the light halations Mm -hmm. like as a cinema nerd is just phenomenal yeah it's funny you bring that up too because i was confused about that because i remember the hills have eyes um came out in 4k i was like i was like what's the point the movie was shot in 16 millimeter um but yeah it looked extraordinary compared to just what the traditional hd version was um but yeah i would highly recommend anybody to check it's it's like watching the movie like even people I've shown it to um, who just like don't necessarily not have appreciation, but just don't pay attention to those things. I've shown them some of the movies at my place and they're just like, this is, they're like, this looks unbelievable. Yep. 
And like that, it's kind of the reaction I've had from people since, like I said, I have an OLED television. And one of the big selling points of an OLED television is it has a, a, a perfect contrast ratio. Because say oh. you're watching a movie in like ultra widescreen where you have the black bars at top and bottom. Anything that's that's perfect black on an OLED turns off. Wow. So I also painted my room black, cool. my living room. So if I'm watching a movie, say like Vertigo, where it's in widescreen, um, those black bars blend into my television and it's oh, just cool. screen. And then since I, with my speakers and everything, it's just, you're enveloped in sound. So one of these days you'll have to take the trip, make the trip up and come watch a movie at my place. Oh, I'm, I'm, I am so into that. <laughs> <laughs> all right now that we've bored everyone <laughs> uh once again thank you very much for coming on the show i really appreciate it and um yeah let's get together soon and talk some more yeah it was so great hearing from you and talking to you and getting to hang out again and uh yeah we'll do it again perfect and then an extra special thanks to fellow podcaster in front of the show, Austin Proctor, who actually had edited this episode. So if you want to support Austin Proctor and everything he does, be sure to check out the Fright Mares podcast. I am a, a occasional co-host on that show, but he does one of my favorite podcasts about the horror genre, and it should be one of your favorite podcasts, too. So thanks a lot for Austin Proctor for editing this episode. The Shameless Picture Show is recorded in Milwaukee, Wisconsin and Easton, Maryland, and is hosted and produced by Nick Richards and Michael Viers. Today's episode was edited by Michael Viers. Our opening theme music was written especially for us by The Directionals, with narration by Zach McLean. The end credit music you're enjoying at the moment was generously provided by my friends in the band 10 Speed. The Shameless graphic design is masterfully done by Amanda Viers. An extra special thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to our generous sponsors. We are on Spotify, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, Google Play, and Libsyn. You can find links for all these amazing people in the description below.